Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptising in the desert region, and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. At that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Thank you, Judy. Uh, Keep your Bibles open. There's uh, a lot of details in there. There's lots to note and be aware of. Um, And so you'll be well served if you can have those words in front of you uh, as we work our way through them together. Uh, I want to start with a question. You don't have to put your hand up. You can just nod or or indicate your answer somehow if you would like. Uh, Who's ever been to the dog on the tucker box? Few, yes, maybe, some. Okay, of those who've been there... Uh, who was impressed? Um, you kind of, you can probably pick my uh, reaction. Um, look, I'd heard the dog on the Tucker box was, you know, a cultural icon. It's up there with the big banana, Uluru. <laughs> it, it's right up there. Uh, and one day we happened to be driving past. I wasn't aware of that. So when we saw the sign, I thought, well, look, let's add some culture into our holiday. Let's stop. I was expecting, you know something big. Everything else in our country is big. Uh, I was expecting something grand with a big deal around it and very impressive. Uh, What I wasn't expecting was that the dog on the tucker box is very small, uh, barely noticeable, just on the side of a car park which also includes a KFC, which uh, maybe it is a cultural icon then, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, We won't be stopping there again. Look, by all means, do it if you like. Uh, Just get your expectations right. Uh, expectations are hard to work with, aren't they? Uh, they, they can lead us to, <laughs> to stumble sometimes. Uh, they can lead us astray. They can be hard to work with. So spare a thought then for, the, uh, for, for Mark uh, sitting down to write his account of Jesus' life. I mean, what a weight of expectations on the guy. He, he's writing about the most famous, the most remarkable man in history. Sure, early days, but already in his time, Jesus was already well-known and notorious. And he's got to sit down and write about this guy. I mean, what a task. (laughs) Now, of course, Mark was pretty well qualified for this job. Uh, Although not one of the original 12 followers of Jesus, one of his disciples, 
Uh, Mark wasn't exactly a stranger. When we uh, read on in the New Testament, we see that it's actually quite possible that the place where Jesus had the Last Supper with his disciples may well have been Mark's house, or if not his house, probably his mum's. When we get to the book of Acts and the early history of the church, we see the church was actually meeting in his house. Uh, Mark himself accompanied uh, Paul and Barnabas, two of the early church leaders, on a number of their missionary trips, taking the gospel out into the world at the time. And he also pops up later uh, in Rome uh, as kind of, uh, I guess, an assistant or uh, a helper to the Apostle Peter, with whom it seems he spent a lot of time with. So he's not exactly a fringe character here. He pops up again and again. Now, no doubt by this time Peter's getting old or maybe uh, he's just recently died. And the church in Rome is, is urging Mark, please write down everything that you've seen, everything that you've heard, everything that you've been taught by Peter. Uh, Draw on your own experience. Draw on uh, the far fuller account that Peter, as a close friend of Jesus, can give. Draw on everything you've seen and record it for us so that we can know all about who he is. Obviously, Mark did. Uh, And we have his account. The very first of the four Gospels to be written uh, within about 30 years of Jesus' death built on all these eyewitness accounts. Uh, It's the shortest of the Gospels. It's really bare bones kind of uh, account. But it's all here to introduce to us this this man, this figure, this saviour, Jesus. Who is he? What is he like? What does he do? Well, that's really what this book is going to unpack for us and what we're going to see over the coming months as we work our way through it. Familiar words, yes, but no less profound for that. When we turn to the book, uh, I don't know what your reaction was when, you, when we started reading this, when Judy started reading this for it. It's actually quite peculiar how this book starts, isn't it? Uh, Mark pretty much gives away the punchline right up front. Have a look again at verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, it's kind of all there, isn't it? That could be the last sentence of the, the, the book and it would make perfect sense there as well. Uh, It's about gospel, that just literally means good news. Uh, It's about Christ. Um, Christ isn't Jesus' surname, it's a word that means Messiah, that is anointed one. Uh, It's a word that was very important in Jewish thinking, which meant uh, the one who was going to be a king, who was going to be a rescuer. And it's about the Son of God. Not just about a special man, but about a man who is God. Uh, The son of a human is a human, so the son of God is God. It's all right there. That's that's kind of the summary of Mark. But what does such a man look like? What what does such a man do? What, What is he? Well, that's really what the Gospel unpacks for us. And what he tells us first is not really what we'd expect, is it? Have a look at verse 2 through 6. It is written in Isaiah the prophet... I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptising in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, 
with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. The spotlight, when we start, isn't actually on Jesus, is it? No, Mark turns the spotlight straight onto John, who we know as John the Baptist. It's, it's kind of a surprise, especially after that opening verse. Why start here? And especially, why describe him in such detail? I mean, Mark is very thin on details the whole way through his book. But now we've got John the Baptist not only spoken of at length, but we even know what he wore. We even know what he ate. I mean, it seems so strange, doesn't it? But of course, it's not strange. It's very deliberate. It's not an accident here. Mark is building a picture for us. And he's referring here uh, back to a verse from 2 Kings, in the Old Testament, from 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. Just a note, we're going to be doing a lot of Old Testament references. They're going to appear behind me, so you don't have to flick through them all. Uh, you can maybe just write down a note of what they are, if you like. 2 Kings 1, verse 8, this is what we read. They replied, He was a man with a garment of hair and with a leather belt around his waist. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And the king said, That was Elijah the Tishbite. So what Mark is telling us is there's a similarity here. John is not just dressed like this by accident. He's being a bit like Elijah, this famous Old Testament prophet. But there's more to this picture because Mark opens this story with these quotations from the Old Testament. Uh, He says it's from Isaiah. There's actually three quotations there, the biggest one being from Isaiah. Uh, Here they are, Exodus 23 verse 20. God saying, see, I am sending an angel, that is literally messenger, ahead of you. Isaiah 40, verse 3, what we read at the start of the service, a voice of one calling, in the desert prepare the way for the Lord. And Malachi 3, verse 1, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. See, that they're all stuck together here, aren't they, in Mark? Mark has, has welded them together and saying something's coming. And the last one is particularly interesting says a messenger is coming and if we flick to the next chapter in Malachi, Malachi 4 verse 5, this is what we read. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And you think, well, it's all very interesting. Uh, but so what? Why does that matter? Well, Mark's telling us something very important here. He's building a point for us that is very, very important. Uh, As I talked about with the kids, uh, God has been promising for years, for for hundreds of years, I'm going to come and I'm going to make right for you, my people, everything that's wrong. Uh, His people had been through all sorts of things. They had suffered, they'd been humiliated, they'd been exiled, they'd been rejected. And God's been saying to them all through that time, you can't make that right. There's all this horrible stuff happening, but you can't fix it. And so I will. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to make you right. I'm going to bring you back to your land. I'm going to be with you and be your God again. He's made all these amazing promises. But then he said, before all that happens, before all of this stuff comes, I'm going to send my messenger. I'm going to send this guy who's going to be like Elijah and he's going to let you know that it's coming. He's going to make way, make ready. He's going to come first. And so Mark is is grabbing all these references from the Old Testament, grabbing all these promises in order really to shout to us, it's happening. (laughs) 
John the Baptist is this guy. He is this Elijah figure that God has said is coming. He is the one who comes before. Do you see what is happening here? God is fulfilling his promises. God is coming. He's going to do all that he promised, all that he said he would. How do we know it's all here? Because this Elijah figure has come. And it's a bit like the start of the wedding. Um, you know what it's like at a wedding. The bride's always late. Uh, all brides are late. I don't know, it's kind of some rule. But imagine this wedding. The, the bride is late. Uh, not just fashionably late, but properly late. And you get that, you know what it's like, you get that strange hum going around a room, don't you? You can kind of hear the buzz. Everyone, you know, checking their watches. They've read the program, you know, seven or eight times. It's become a bit old by now. And they're, they're whispering, she's making us wait, isn't she? Have you seen the time? Isn't this ridiculous? And then the father of the bride enters at the back and you see every head whip around quickly. And Is she here? No, it's just a false alarm. It's just the father of the bride. The brother of the bride walks in a few minutes later and again the ripple goes through the room. Is she here? No, it's just a false alarm again. But then the mother of the bride walks in and she nods at the musician. And you you can hear it, you can feel it, can't you? This hum in the room. Everyone knows she's here. She's here. It's finally starting. it's, It's happening. It's come. You can see the sweat start to drip down the groom's face. That, that's what's happening here in Mark. John the Baptist has arrived. It's starting. It's coming. He's not the star of the show. He's the one saying, the star is on the doorstep. It's all happening. It's all happening now. I mean, you might wish that Mark would start in the usual Christmassy way. You might wish for shepherds and wise men and animals and angels and stables and all those things that happen at Christmas. But he doesn't, and he doesn't for a really good reason. Because he wants to to, to focus our attention like a laser on this. That everything God has promised is happening. All of God's plans, all of God's purposes, all of his amazing and beautiful and good promises are here. They are here. This is it. The height, the pinnacle, the fulfilment of God's plan has taken place. Right here, 2,000 years ago in the coming of Jesus. There is no looking for more or or hoping for the next stage or waiting for for better yet to come. This is it. It, It's it's all gathered in here, this promise of comfort, of restoration, of forgiveness and reward and life and relationship with God and hope and glory. It's all here. It has come. You can read of it, you can know it, you can see it And even, the implication is, receive it. Because what Mark is telling us, a little obliquely, is that Jesus is at the centre of it all. Yes, the opening is about John the Baptist, but but he's not the main character. Uh, He's not even the main character in his own words. Look at verse 7 and 8. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. The one who comes next is at the centre, Jesus. All the waiting, all the hopes, all the expectations, all the cries of how long? And Jesus steps onto centre stage. 
And at the very least, what that tells us is you can't have, uh, you can't understand, and you certainly can't receive without him. He is the height, he is the centre, he is the fulfilment of everything that God is doing. You can't know or you can't understand God without Jesus. He is the key, he is the centre to it all. This strange, enigmatic character that we're going to see throughout Mark uh, is not an optional, not not a side issue. Now right from the start we see Jesus is at the heart of it all. And that makes what happens next seem all the more strange. Look at verse 9. It's a very dramatic event. At that time Jesus came from Nazareth Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. (laughs) Kind of weird, isn't it? We've just been hyped up to expect uh, how great this this guy is. John's been saying uh, the one who's coming is is so much more mighty than I. I'm not even worthy of of untying his dirty, dusty, sweaty sandals. Uh, And now he comes. You expect parade, you expect a band maybe and and cheering and all all this fuss. Uh, Maybe at the very least, with all this baptising going on, you'd expect him to baptise John. And instead, John baptises him. We're going to explore the significance of that in a moment, but, but it's also ordinary. It's also straightforward. No one even recognises who he is or what's taking place here. No one besides one person. Have a look at verse 10 and 11. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Uh, We're not told how public this was. Um, we don't know if the crowd heard it we don't know if it was just for John and Jesus we don't even know if it was just for Jesus but either way Peter learned of it uh, and told Mark about it and he wrote of it and that's good because there's important stuff at play here first we we see this picture of the spirit descending Uh, as a dove it's a bit unclear what that means it's probably a symbol of peace But regardless of what the symbolism is there, the point is quite clear. Jesus is being approved here by God. God himself in the Spirit is coming to rest upon him. God's approving him. God's commissioning him for what's going to take place. But not just that. God's enabling him. That the Spirit's come to fill him and and send him and equip him for the work ahead. It's incredibly important. And then the words that God speaks, well, they're, they're no less significant, are they? Uh, Because God actually quotes the Old Testament. He quotes himself, in a manner of speaking. And he does so using some words which have been so familiar, not only to the people right there, but also to the people that Mark is writing to. Uh, Firstly, God quotes Psalm 2, verse 7. So what we read there. He said to me, You are my son, today I have become your father. Uh, Do you hear what's being said there? You're not just a son of God, you are the son of God. God's saying, there's none like Jesus. He's a man, but he is also God. He's totally human, he's totally divine, and he is utterly unique. There's no one like him. 
But God also quotes Isaiah 42 verse 1. We read there, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I will delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. We see that, don't we? The spirit uh, in the one in whom God will delight or the one in whom he is well pleased with. God's saying, he's my son, but he's also my servant. Uh, if you've read through Isaiah before, you'll know that about chapter 40 uh, onwards, this, this figure appears. God's promising he's going to act in the world. God's promising he's going to rescue. But then this mysterious servant figure kind of a- appears on the scene. And again and again, God doesn't tell us who it is there, but he says, he's going to do it. He's going to be the one. This, this servant figure is going to save my people. Um, here's what God says uh, to him in Isaiah 42, 6-7. Uh, This is God speaking to the servant. He says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. It's huge, isn't it? Look at what God is saying he's going to do through this servant figure. First of all, he's going to make a new covenant. That is a new relationship, a new agreement between himself and his people. He's saying people again are going to live with God and going to be blessed in him. And now not just Israel, but but the Gentiles, that is all others too. He's promising to rescue them, to open eyes, to to free prisoners, not literally, but, but spiritually. And at his baptism, God proclaims, This man is it. Jesus is it. He is my son who will rule in my name. He is my servant who will rescue my people. He is the one. Jesus is defined here for us who exactly he is. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a special man who rose to the occasion, you know, cometh the moment, cometh the man. He's more than that. He's far more than that. He is God himself, God the Son and God's servant who came to effect the rescue of his people. He is clearly defined so that we know who he is. I mean, it's so important that he's set aside so clearly here. It protects us from misunderstanding him as the story unfolds. I mean, we know the risk, don't we? If you, if you live publicly, if you do things that everyone sees, there's huge risk, there's huge potential to be misunderstood. Uh, Take, for example, Peppa Pig. Probably not the example you were expecting. Uh, Peppa Pig has been grossly misunderstood. Uh, She's not just a cartoon figure loved by kids, loathed by parents. Uh, But in China, Peppa Pig is a gangster symbol. I don't know if you knew that. I only found it out this week. Uh, She has gangland connections. There's a darker side to Peppa Pig. Uh, She's known there as Cheeky Little Piggy. That seems pretty appropriate. But in Chinese, that comes very close to a slang for gangster. Uh, To the point that that people uh, seeing her as a gangster symbol actually are tattooing themselves, adults, with pictures of Peppa Pig. (laughs) There's something you wouldn't see every day. They're using her as this emblem of illicit activity. Who Peppa Pig is has been completely misunderstood 
And there's a risk that the same could happen to Jesus. I mean, it came close, didn't it? If you know the story of his life, you'll know that at one point uh, the crowds around him tried to make him king by force. They, they misunderstood who he was. But not just then, later too, he was misunderstood as the figurehead of a rebellion or as a threat to the empire. Misunderstood as just another man or maybe just another teacher or maybe a special man but no different to the emperor. And it's not just then. How misunderstood has he been in our time? Jesus, just the teacher. Jesus, the the life guide. Jesus, the communist. Jesus, uh, an example to look to. Jesus, a figurehead for causes or social justice. And that's why Mark is so clear here. He's saying, don't misunderstand who this man is. Don't misunderstand what he's here to do. He is so much more than any of these things. He's not to be defined by by you or by us. He's not here to, to fit into our categories of thinking. Instead, the very opposite. He is here to define us. He is here to shape us and our thinking. He is the Son of God. Not simply one for us to admire, but one for us to submit to, uh, to follow, to, to give our lives and our worship and our honour to. Uh, he's not a God for our back pocket to you know, pull out when we like, uh, to put back down when we want to do our own thing. He is God. Capital G. The God to heed, to obey and to give ourselves to. All of our life and all of our time. And he is God's servant. Uh, not simply a teacher, not simply an example, but the one appointed to bring life and to bring redemption to his people. He is the way. He is the only way. There's no other. It's in him and in him alone that people can be saved and can receive the promise of God. Jesus is at the centre of God's plan and at the centre of Jesus is his identity as God's son and as God's servant. And he can only be understood as such. With that in mind, you would think then that the start of his career would be amazing, that he would burst on the scene in some dramatic and incredible way. And so it seems like there's a bit of an anticlimax, doesn't there? Look at verses 12 and 13. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. I mean, it's got to be one of the most low-key starts to a public career, isn't it? It's, it's, it's so strange. And yet, the devil is in the details. I mean, literally in the story, uh, but in the details as well. We're told Jesus was in the desert or in the wilderness for 40 days uh, and it's no accident, that number. It's a symbol for us. Um, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that after God's people escaped uh, from Egypt, they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, in the desert. And now Mark's saying, Jesus did the same. Uh, like them, he, he, like his people, he wandered in the wilderness. Like them, he faced their temptation and, and hardship and opposition. So he was like his people. But what then about that, that comment of wild animals? or wild beasts, depending on your translation. It's a strange detail, isn't it? Uh, It doesn't appear in any of the other Gospels. Mark's the only one who records it. And again, not by accident. 
Remember he's, he's writing to the church in Rome, to Roman Christians, um, people at this very time who are facing terrible opposition. Um, he either is writing in or uh, just after the reign of Emperor Nero, uh, who was famous for his hatred of Christians. Uh, he, he invented all these weird and bizarre ways to, to punish and put them to death. And one of his favourites was sending them to the arena in order to be torn apart by wild beasts. And what Mark seems to be saying here is to them, Jesus faced them too. Uh, Jesus knew, knows what you're experiencing. He's also been there. See, Mark is recording Jesus' temptation, uh, not just to to tell us what happened or to, to relay details to us, He's doing it to tell us that Jesus is like us. Jesus knows us. Yes, he is the divine Son of God. Yes, he is God's appointed servant saviour. But he is not one who is just distant and unrelatable. He's, He's not one who has no clue what it's like on the ground. He's one who is like us. One who identifies with us. I mean, that's really what his baptism was about, isn't it? It's not that that Jesus had all these sins to confess and sins to repent of. Uh, That's not what his baptism was. No, his baptism was saying, I'm like you, I I belong with you, I'm I'm, I'm part of humanity. I'm joining your ranks. I'm like you. Uh, It's it's important, isn't it? Because we want people, we want leaders who, who we can relate to. It's been the problem with so many of our Prime Ministers uh, in past years. I mean, remember poor... Poor? He's not poor. Remember Malcolm Turnbull. Um, I'm sure a smart, very savvy guy, but so unrelatable. Clearly born with a silver spoon, elite schooling, lots of money, lots of privileges on the way. And he just didn't seem to get people, and people didn't get him. (laughs) He was too slick, too upper class, too well educated, too distant. And not intentionally, at least I'm guessing, but he just made us feel small. He made us feel a bit dumb. He was too smart for us. We didn't like him because he wasn't like us. And what Mark's saying is Jesus is not like that. Yes, he is so much more than us, but he also comes to identify with us. He joins with humanity. He feels our hurts. He faces our struggles and our temptations. He knows them, not just in theory. He knows them because he has experienced them. This is um, what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. uh, Since the children, he's talking about humanity, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. And just a couple of chapters later in Hebrews 4, 15, For we do not have a high priest, that is Jesus, who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So Jesus identifies with us, but he exceeds us. Israel uh, fell in the wilderness, but Jesus didn't. He overcame The Christians fell before the wild animals, but Jesus didn't. He endured. He passed the test. He overcame the opposition. He won. He's like us, but he's better. 
He is what we were meant to be. Uh, Not so that he would just be superior to us, but so that he could be our saviour, so that he could act for our sake and on our behalf. Because that's what he does. He comes to, to enter into our life, to identify with us, to become like us in order to break us out of our fallenness and brokenness and pain. He comes to free us, to give us life. He became like us to do it for us. And he took it all the way. The son and servant who served and pleased God perfectly, without stumbling, without falling, said this in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man, Jesus is talking about himself here, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He lived not to show us what a better life looked like, not to lead us to a better life, but to die, to give up his own life, in order that we would receive it. The way he saves, the way he serves, the way he rescues and restores us to God is by dying for us as our perfect representative, as our perfect sacrifice and ransom in our place, forgiving us, washing us, peace-making for us. And as we're going to see throughout the book of Mark, the way we receive all of that is by repenting, by trusting and by believing in him. And not only he, but all of this in him becomes ours. Sometimes our expectations are too big and we're disappointed, i.e. the dog in the tucker box. Sometimes our expectations are too small and we're amazed and, and staggered and astonished. And that's what it is with Jesus. The centre of God's plan is not what we expected. Uh, it's not even what we hoped for. It is so much better. It is God's Son who came to serve, to give his life, to take our place, to overcome on our behalf and to win us life. It is better indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are true to your word, that you have fulfilled your promises, for you have sent your Son into this world as your servant to rescue and forgive and bring life. Father, we thank you for Jesus, that he came to live like us, that he came to live for us and die in our place so that our sins could be taken, so that our debt could be paid and that we could go free. Father, help us to trust him and help us to live with him at the centre of our lives, resting on him, following him, obeying him, and serving him as Lord of all, in all things. In his name we pray. Amen.